0: City streets, and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence, where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation you know sometimes when you're watching you know CSI Las Vegas or CSI Miami Beach or one of the cop shows or occasionally some of the reality uh, television documentaries that deal with forensic investigations and police work especially when it comes to the crimes of homicide kidnapping and sexual assault we have to use the stress memory recall of victims and witnesses in order to obtain a description of the suspect that's involved in the crime. And that is a very challenging thing to do for investigators. They don't always do it as well as they could do it. And so because of that, they depend on a person with a particular specialized skill set called forensic artistry. And with us today, we have exactly that. We have a forensic sketch artist who is actually nationally and internationally renowned, Mike Street, from the Sketch Cop. So welcome to A Thread of Evidence, Mike. I've got all sorts of questions for you, and I'm sure our audience today is going to be fascinated by the world of forensic sketching.
1: Thank you, Ron, for having me on your show. It's a great privilege and honor to be speaking with you.
0: Well, let me, let me just start from the beginning and tell me how you got involved in this fascinating part of forensic science.
1: Well, it was by accident, actually. I started out like most kids, uh, you know, would like to draw and doodle, and I used to occupy myself during class paying more attention to the things I was drawing more than the things I was learning. So when it finally came time for me to choose a career when I was graduating from high school and entering college, um, I thought that might be a good way to go because I had always aspired to be a Disney artist and I always thought it'd be cool to be a a comic artist, an animator, do things that make people smile. And my father, who was a police officer himself and eventually retired as a police chief after a 35-year police career, he didn't necessarily want me near... he didn't want me to be an artist, but yet he didn't want me to be a police officer. When it came time to choose between the two, he went towards art because he felt that a police career with all the politics and the challenges going on in the 70s and society and stuff, it it would be a, a lesser burden to bear. But there were always police officers around my house growing up, and I loved the stories they told, and I loved the action. I liked being outside, and I thought this would be a great career. And so I put my artistic aspirations on hold until one night I was getting ready for shift and happened to see a television news report where they were discussing an armed robbery and they, a composite sketch flash on the screen, uh, an artist hand-drawn picture of the suspect. And it was then I just, that was it. It was the epiphany. It was, that was my moment where I'm like, that is the perfect way to blend my love for art with my love for public
0: service. Well, I know that you were involved in police work for a long time because you're actually a retired police sergeant. And what agency were you working for?
1: When I retired, I was working for the City of Orange Police Department in Orange County, California. I was a patrol sergeant, but during my 31-year career, I spent 10 years as a detective. And when I started, you know, I worked like most police officers. I you know I worked drugs, I worked gangs, I worked sexual assaults, I worked on some homicide cases. I had a very fulfilling police career, but there was that creative side of me, and I always loved catching crooks, loved locking people up, because I figured that was the only way to ensure the safety of the community. More people I locked up, the safer the community was. So, I was always looking for new tools to help me lock more people up, and I thought, what a great tool to have to take an eyewitness description, sketch that person out, and ultimately capture them and put them in jail. Um, well, so
0: what was but, your undergraduate degree in when you were in college?
1: Well, I'm ashamed to say that I don't have one, but I was gearing towards criminal justice, like okay. a lot of police officers. and um, but I've got a lot of art background as well in terms of specialized vocational training. Um, you know when I went to when I made the decision to have my career as a forensic artist parallel that as my career as a police officer, I figured if I wanted to be really good at what I did, and I, and I don't go into things not wanting to be second best, I wanted to be the best, so I had to seek out the best. So I traveled around the country, um, studying under the best people in the business, going to the best vocational schools, FBI Academy, National Center for Missing Explo- Exploited Children, University of Oklahoma, and I was a sponge. I was a traveling sponge. I went wherever the, the people were, and they were good enough to mentor me, and I'm still learning today.
0: Now, were these all forensic artists like yourself and you're going and you're just kind of doing sort of a, uh, an apprenticeship, sort of a, it's not actually an apprenticeship, you're learning, you're sort of sponging information, right? And uh, picking up some tips from these people?
1: It was both, actually. Um, I find that the people who at that time were big in the business oftentimes offered their own training. So, for example, the very first class I took was from a Los Angeles police sketch artist who was well known for uh, handling the Night Stalker case, the Freeway Strangle, just a whole bunch. Some of LA's top cases, he did the sketches. He was a trained fine artist, but he had adapted that skill as a police sketch artist. So he would put on a week-long seminar, uh, you know, detailing how to become a sketch artist, how to interview people, how to draw properly. But after the class, we became good friends. And so I only live 30 minutes south of his office. So I spent a lot of time two, three days a week, just following him around, hanging around his office. And it ultimately led to a, uh, I wouldn't say internship, but uh, I got involved with the Los Angeles Police Department as what they call a specialist reserve. So when, when he wasn't available through when he was sick or on vacation, they would call me in to handle their cases.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. Now, I see also that you've got some experience with the Baltimore Police Department. How did that take place?
1: Oh, yeah, that was an interesting story because I was at a retirement party for a friend of mine who was retiring as a police chief. And as I was walking across the room, one of our forensic specialists from my agency yelled out to me, hey, I hear Baltimore Police Department's looking for a forensic sketch artist. And she kind of chuckled like, "Like we're in California, they're in Maryland, too bad, so sad. And I went home to my wife, and she's very, very supportive of my efforts, my career, and I said, so what do you think? And she said, you trained your whole career for it, go for it. So I competed, uh, they you know, they recruited nationally. I competed in a series of interviews, and was eventually selected as their first ever full-time police sketch artist assigned to the crime laboratory. So I moved back there, left my family here, and I did the bi-coastal thing, traveled home every few weeks to hang out, and check in, see how the family was. And for three years, I was on site there handling all their sketch cases. In my first year, I was the busiest sketch artist in the country. I was busier than sketch artists in Houston, New York City. Uh, just because of the ridiculous amount of
0: crime they have there. Right. I've done, I've done a few cases uh, in, in the Baltimore and Maryland uh, areas myself. But, wow, what a, what a tremendous sacrifice for your family. Hey, let me ask you a question. So how do you interview for the position of forensic sketch artist? And do, do you have to, you know, demonstrate your competency and produce a work product? How did that work?
1: you know, they're they're very rare jobs. Finding a full-time job as a police sketch artist or forensic artist, as they prefer to be called, uh, is like finding a unicorn. Um, You know, it used to be they were more prevalent, but as budgets shrank and the need for them shrank and technology kind of stepped in, um, they're less and less. So I actually, before Baltimore, competed for a forensic art job for the state of Texas, Texas DPS, and lost out on that one. And then run right in the heels of that uh, you know went to Baltimore and in both instances, you know they required the standard employment application uh, they required you to prove your competence and your experience in education as well as submit a portfolio and the portfolio wasn't necessarily so much of your drawings as much as they were your drawings and the results in other words, did that drawing result in an arrest and they were looking to see the comparison between the arrest photo and the police sketch uh, to determine how close they were. and, and, And that would determine again, your competence, which is a false positive in terms of how good a fit you really are for the job because the result is oftentimes based upon your eyewitness. So you have, you have about half responsibility for the resulting arrest and of course the victim has the other. So, uh, but that's what that's what you, it typically entails
0: well you know it, it's so interesting you know we, you and I were, were both detectives uh, you you were the sketch guy but of course as every police officer knows and every investigator knows uh, being able to sit down and develop rapport uh, with a traumatized victim or a witness and uh, dealing with the issues of uh you know, stress recall memory, uh, perseveration, plausible possibilities. You know, my background's in in forensic psych. Those are uh, very important skills to have. But to be able to take that, you know, from my level and get a description and move it to a much higher level, which is yours, to be able to physically demonstrate a description i think that's a totally different and more advanced skill set what's your response to that
1: it's definitely different and i've been on both sides for example you know when we start off as patrol officers when we go to the academy we probably went to the academy about the same time or the same era mm-hmm. and we were taught to ask the who what when where why and how that was it you get in you ask the questions you fill in the boxes on your police report and you get out and you go on to the next call And the types of questions back then uh, were more of a leading um, sort of question. It's almost like, it's akin to putting words in someone's mouth, so to speak. And so all the research that's been done uh, by cognitive psychologists resulted in Dr. Ronald Fisher and Dr. Geiselman from UCLA uh, creating the cognitive interview, which is what most forensic artists use. And it's more of a non-leading narrative style of Interviewing where the witness the eyewitness actually drives the interview so to speak. They're providing the information in more of a
0: narrative fashion Sure, and we're questions of them. Yeah, and we're asking questions of clarification, and then we go to the reconciliation uh, component of the interview. Now do you uh, when you are getting that description from the person uh, how are you seated? How are they seated? Uh, are you drawing while they're talking with you? I mean, ha- how do you how do you actually perform the work when you're with your witness?
1: Well, I think that um, you know, I myself, and again, you know, interviewing is a is a is a skill. And it's it's a style, and everyone has their own style. I try not to put any physical barriers between myself and the eyewitness. And I also don't sketch when I'm initially doing the first assessment they're they're initially describing. And you had mentioned rapport building before, and probably the first 20 minutes they walk into the room, we're working on building rapport and building that trust. I'll give you an example. Um, When I was in Baltimore, uh, You know, I would have people come in who were, you know, who were citizens, no criminal background, you know, just working day stiff that was, you know, just getting out there trying to do their their thing, so to speak, and got victimized. Then the next day I had somebody come in who had a lengthy criminal record, may have been a gang member, drug dealer, um, you know, whatever. And so I had to adapt my style of interview and how I talked to them in very different ways. So what I found back there was. Um, a lot of people related to street life, so to speak. So I hung a picture um, as a caricature gathering of a lot of gangsters from a lot of the popular gangster movies. And you know, so they would come in, they see that picture right away. And they were so obsessed with trying to pick out and identify the different criminals in the picture. It was a great jump off point for us to start building that rapport. So that was my rapport building tool hanging on the wall that they would see when they first come in. And the interview just kind of went from there
0: you know that that's really good you know i know that when i do interviews and and i use both the cognitive behavioral interview and the kinetic interview but uh, you know my first section in talking with them I make it a point not even to talk about anything about the case I just want to talk about them and what they like and uh, you know what are their favorite things to do because I need to get a baseline response from that person to see the way that they respond to questions when they're not under stress because you know actually just being in the interview room with any type of investigator is stressful in and of itself and you know it's interesting you you brought out the thing about you know a, a gang member with a lengthy criminal record because i absolutely agree with you having worked gangs you, you got to handle those people totally different
1: one night they locked me in a room in the homicide detail i went there they had a uh, two guys were walking down the street and gunman walked up and blew this guy's brains out right in front of his buddy and his buddy had a lengthy record and he was really uncooperative and they said you know just try to do the best you can to get a sketch And so I went into the interview room, big heavy metal door closed and locked behind me. (laughs) That's intimidating. Yeah, and and he's in there yelling and hollering at me. He doesn't remember anything. He wants to leave. And I said, you are not leaving until we get a sketch. I want the truth. I don't want you just telling me something to get me out of here. But you were there. You saw something. Let's get down and get to get to business. And we went round and round. And by the time we walked out, we had a sketch. And they said, yeah, we didn't say anything to you. But he was a... suspect in another homicide six months before oh wonderful you know so this isn't necessarily a, a career that's for the faint of heart so to speak right. and it's very different than that depicted in Hollywood where you see the television uh, proceed police procedural dramas where a sketch artist is, is sitting in a, a quiet room just placidly drawing along I've had Go ahead. I've had people try, try to sell me drugs try to commit I mean just a whole lot of I could tell you stories forever
0: during the sketch interview.
1: Yeah, during sketch interview, one gal asked me if I had five dollars. Uh, she had some oxycontin she'd like to sell me for five bucks because she needed bus fare to go see her probation officer the
0: next day. Oh man, I'm telling you. So, uh, what are some, you've mentioned some of the challenges, what are some of the more extreme challenges that you have to deal with, I mean, uh, with people emotionally? Do you have people breaking down during the interview? How do you get them to recover? How do you, you know, how do you get them uh, to get centered again so that you can concentrate on getting sufficient details to, to make a sketch?
1: Well I'll tell you uh, in short, that communication is the greatest skill set you can bring to a career as a forensic artist. You could be Rembrandt. and if you can't connect with people and you're a poor communicator, you might as well stick to you know painting bowls of fruit and stuff because this is a people job and I treat people the way I would accept it. High trauma victims are very difficult. Uh, crying is a good thing, especially in this business, especially when you're doing a sketch because when they see that sketch, and they burst into tears and have that visceral response, you know that you've hit home, and you, you've right. got a good sketch typically. I absolutely
0: agree with you there. So I, I think this is just a, a fascinating uh, you know part of, of forensic science. And uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back uh, with Mike Streed, I want to talk to you about some of your best cases, Mike. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and forensic sketch artist, Michael Streed, on a thread of evidence. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli.
2: And I'm Linda Martinelli.
0: As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter.
2: Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness.
0: And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our Response to Active Shooter training course.
2: Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member.
0: Our response to active shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs.
2: So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims.
0: Our Response to Active Shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event.
2: So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responstoactiveshooter.com to learn more today.
0: Remember, that's all one word, responstoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an Out Loud life on AmericaOutloud.com, Glitcher News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and
3: Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: Well, Mike, let's start talking about some of the more famous cases that you've worked. I think our listeners would be fascinated uh, on the story and how you produced the sketch.
1: That'd be great. Yes, I, you know, I in in nearly forty years of doing this, uh, you know, there's a lot of cases, but there's a few that come to mind uh, that are, probably stick out just for the sheer brutality of the cases and the types of cases they were. And I think probably one of the most um, impactful ones early in my career uh, that helped shape the direction I went in with technology and such was in the early 90s in in the Baton Rouge area of Louisiana when there was a serial killer victimizing uh, co-eds in the, in the college area there. And so just, I think it's north of Baton Rouge, a little town called Zachary. And Zachary had, had some disappearances uh, and they had a, a character that lived in town there that was known to the police. Um, but it wasn't until we did the sketch that uh, they recognized that he might be further involved in down south in the Baton Rouge case. And so they were working with America's Most Wanted, this particular company was providing facial composite software. They wanted me to take their software and go profile the case for America's Most Wanted and interview a couple that had been attacked in the back seat of a car on a rainy night. Uh, by a machete-wielding attacker. So I used the software, produced the sketch, came back to California, forgot about it. And um, there was a little interagency dance that they were doing with some some issues and so some territorial issues. And and the big task force dismissed this little police department's sketch, even though they said, this looks like this person, and they named the person who lived in their town. It wasn't until a couple years later that, in fact, it was the same person. And I had some uh, some reservations about the limits of technology and what we needed to do to further develop that, uh, you know, later on in my career. Um, and I think the, you know, aside from that, I think the the biggest cases for me happened in California in terms of their, I wouldn't say emotional impact, but again, realizing the seriousness of training and having sketch artists available for many police departments and integrating technology would be the Um, Anthony Martinez kidnapping in Beaumont, California in the late, or I'm sorry, in the mid-1990s when a 10-year-old boy was abducted at knife point while playing with his 8-year-old brother and 10-year-old cousin. And it was a drifter that came along and snatched the boy at knife point.
0: Was he a pedestrian or in a vehicle? How how did he approach that boy to snatch him in front of his friends?
1: Well, this was the, the, there was a The kid lived in a home with a dirt alley that ran behind the home. And so they were playing in a fenced area of their front yard. And so this person approached them in a car in the alleyway, got out of the car said, hey, can you help me find my cat? And showed a picture of a cat, offered them a dollar. The 10-year-old victim, ultimately the victim, said, no, we're not interested and kind of pushed the other boys back. Guy left, came back around again and persisted produced a knife, he wanted the eight-year-old. And the 10-year-old victim stepped in front of the eight, his eight-year-old brother, and so he was the one that was abducted, so he gave his life to save his brother's life. Oh, that's heavy,
0: that's really
1: yeah. heavy. And then the, the mother told me that she could hear the boys screaming. She said, you know, Mike, she said they were, the kids were playing 20 feet away from our front door. I was in there talking to a, a friend, Kids were playing outside in a fenced area, presumably safe. They were screaming. It took like 45 minutes to get them calmed down. By the time I was called the next day, I responded to the police department. This is a small police department here in California, Riverside County. Oh, I know it's in Riverside
0: County, sure. Yeah,
1: exactly, and so I pull up there and there are news vans filling the parking lot. I walk into the police station, the briefing room. There are uniformed police lining the whole room. Everyone came together to help and I kept, I talked to the kids, I'm laying on the floor talking to the kids, building rapport, doing all the stuff I'm supposed to be doing with an FBI agent in one corner of the room, a State Department of Justice agent in another corner of the room. Uh, every few minutes, a FBI agent just stick his head in saying, hey, are you almost done? Are you almost done? The media wants a sketch. The media wants oh, a sketch.
0: Oh, that, that you don't need that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that and we did a couple iterations of the sketch. You know, they called another sketch artist in the FBI Remember, uh, recommended because they felt that um, eyewitness children eyewitnesses weren't reliable that they had an adult to witness something and um, there was some back and forth with that and that that case eventually went cold for eight years eight years later I received a phone call from a friend she worked for the sheriff's department friends she says so what do you think about the guy getting id i call her back and said what are you talking about I just worked the relationship just woke up late she said hmm. they caught the guy and what he did was he he slaughtered a family uh he bludgeoned attack a family in in Idaho, and he kidnapped the boy and the girl. He kept the girl alive. Uh, He went to a federal campground in Montana, murdered the kid, tortured him on film, and killed him. Uh, Kept the girl with him and took her to a Denny's one night. A sharp-eyed waitress recognized the girl as a kidnapped victim, called the police. Wow. They take him into custody. He starts admitting to different crimes, admits to the Anthony Martinez abduction. Then he lawyers up. And so they were kind of doubtful. And then they looked at my sketch and said, mm, I think we're onto something. So they were able to identify him through uh, fingerprints that were left on some duct tape used to tie the kid up. Now, this is something for fingerprint people and police officers who roll fingerprints. We're in a real hurry to roll fingerprints. When we're booking people. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was it was the tops of the fingerprints that were left on the tape. So when they ran those fingerprints, the latent prints in APHIS, they never hit uh, once they got a court order roll the tops of the fingerprints mm-hmm. they got a positive match on the on the tape left behind the uh down
0: oh, the hey you know uh, we're, we're talking about uh, you know your sketches uh you know in some cases leading to an arrest and everything do you ever testify in court as a forensic sketch artist
1: occasionally Occasionally, but because sketches are considered to be subjective mm-hmm. and not a type of standard of evidence where there's uh, like DNA and fingerprints, where there's an established markers in terms of positive ID and such, um, not really. Uh, typically, they'll do it if the if the sketch looks really close to the suspect for jury impact, right? And it helps it helps corroborate the other evidence and leaves a lasting vision in their mind because. Obviously, you know, I think sketches are more quote, sexy or more impactful in terms of being relatable in terms of a visual
0: versus a fingerprint or a DNA strand. Sure, you know, i'm I'm glad you brought that up. and And just for our listeners, uh, we have to use an objective. Uh, a standard of evidence uh, when we are giving testimony as experts, so I think you correctly pointed out that we're actually precluded uh, from speculation or guesses, educated guesses or suspicions. We have to have, uh, you know, forensic facts and and circumstances that are, you know, factually supported uh, in order to, to give testimony, so I'm glad you brought that out. You know, when uh, I started talking with you, and I met you on LinkedIn uh, because, you know, you had posted something there that I uh, immediately captured my attention. And I said, boy, wouldn't it be fantastic to have a forensic sketch artist on a thread of evidence? And I asked you t- to send me an exemplar of one of the sketches that you did that led to an arrest. And I'll tell you what, if I was working the street, and we're going to post that, Uh, That that photo and your drawing, the booking photo, and your drawing on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud so people can see it. That will be the photograph of this show. Uh, But let's talk about that case because I understand in talking with you that was a fascinating homicide case.
1: It was fascinating. It was tragic. It was one of those cases that um, I had a lot going on personally professionally at the time. It was in 2002. Uh, Just before that case occurred, my then wife had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And so um, and my son just went off to the Iraq War. And so I had a lot going on with that. And just a month after all that was going on, a a five-year-old girl was playing in an alleyway in Stanton, the city of Stanton in Orange County, with her five-year-old friend uh, late afternoon. And uh, again, like the previous case I described, stranger pulls up in a car, approaches the girls and says, can you help me find my lost dog? And as soon as he gets close enough to them, he reaches out and snatches one of the five-year-old girls and he throws her in the car while she's kicking and screaming pleading for help and drives off. So her five-year-old friend runs and tells her mother and they called the Orange County Sheriff's Department out there and they immediately start an investigation, and everything that could go right with this investigation did, because this was a great example of interagency cooperation, putting the necessary necessary resources to work, including the sketch artist. So, at the time, all they had was the five-year-old's description. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't call me until midnight, so by the time I got to the eyewitness, she had already been talked to by every news station in Los Angeles, social workers, detectives, her mother. So by the time I got her at midnight, her, her memory should have been polluted beyond repair. And her and I were able to sit down between midnight and 3 o'clock in the morning and work up this sketch that they put out. And within two days, two different people called and gave the name of the suspect, Alejandro Avila.
0: Was it and the same name? The people gave exactly the same name of the same guy?
1: Two different people gave the same name of the same guy. So... Wow. The police department, or I'm sorry, the sheriff's department, the FBI started following him around, detained him, got a voluntary swab of his DNA, and were able to match it. So the kidnapping happened on Monday. They were able to have an arrest and collect all the evidence by Friday. Now, you know, this is another, another good example where, you know, he left a lot of DNA. He left a lot of evidence, but he wasn't in CODIS because he didn't have a previous arrest. Now, he was arrested a couple years before, for molesting his girlfriend's children, and the jury acquitted him because they didn't believe the witnesses, and so I think in this case, he, he probably figured that this time he wouldn't leave a witness behind, and um, he finally went to trial in 2005 just after my wife had passed away from the cancer, and um, it's it's kind of like the case in my personal life kind of came full circle at the time, and you know one was tied to the other, and um, I think it's just, a testament to, you know, the value of children as eyewitnesses. And again, you know, agencies smartly using every resource they have. Because face it, some detectives just don't believe in sketches. They have bad experiences with them. Uh, they don't like them. They don't feel that they have any value. Other detectives have had great success with them. And thankfully, I've established a reputation in Orange County. Uh, as a good, accurate sketch artist, and so the Orange County Sheriff's Department called me on a lot of cases.
0: Well, you know, it's, uh, it's so interesting that, that you mention uh, that some officers, uh, you know, don't really trust the sk- you know the sketch and everything. I did not find that to be the case at all, and, but I was very lucky at, at the San Jose Police Department, both as a police officer and as a detective, uh, to be able to work with uh, uh, Tom Macris. Who I know that that you know, and I know it's like you know seven steps to to, to Kevin Bacon between us. <laughs> but uh, I know that uh, during our discussions, you have an you had an opportunity to work with Tom, which I thought was one of the best sketch artists in the United States.
1: He still even even though he's been retired for nearly ten years or over ten years actually, yeah, probably about fifteen years now. To me, in my eyes, he still remains the best sketch artist in the business. It wasn't just his. It just wasn't his drawing style, which he was a lights out artist in terms of skill. But he had this quality this Zen like this quiet teacher master type of quality about him. And he really found a way to really relax people and really get to them. And, and I mean, there's just I, I can't say enough about the guy. I was thankful to at least meet him on a couple of occasions and spend hours with him and kind of soak up some of that myself.
0: Well, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something about, uh, about Tom, and if you, if you went into his studio, you'd know this. Tom used to give so much give back uh, to, to the San Jose Police Department family and also something we have there at San Jose PD called the Keith Cully Club. And when guys would retire, guys and gals that would retire from the police department that had been there for many years and were, you know, kind of legends uh, in those days, Tom would always draw a retirement caricature of this person, and uh, I I can remember some of those vividly. Uh, He just did just a tremendous job, and no matter what Tom Macris was involved in while at San Jose PD, everything he touched was just golden, and he was so appreciated at that department. Absolutely. So, yeah. So let's talk about uh, one more case for now uh, before we go to break, and because uh, I'm just so interested in what you've got to say.
1: Well, you know, I, I think that you know when you look at the, I, I actually stopped using the word for the term for myself, forensic artist, because I do so much more. I, I call myself a forensic facial imaging expert now because I've gone into other things, you know, facial reconstruction, and one of the latest things I do is one-to-one photo comparisons was called upon a couple years ago to examine photos taken in the 70s of two of the three people who were famous for the 1962 escape from Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary.
0: Oh, I love that case. I love that story. Saw the movie, Clint Eastwood. It was excellent. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, Frank Morris, who was the Birdman of Alcatraz, and and two brothers, the Anglin brothers, uh, they had escaped in 1962 from Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary, they, then they were the three people who were the, were the only ones thought to have made it off the rock, so to speak. Uh, the FBI and Marshall's marshal's office said, nope, they drowned, never found any bodies, never have any, any evidence. They made it ashore, so therefore, case closed, dead. Um, a couple of years ago, I get, get a call from a production company said that they'd heard from some of the relatives of the Anglin brothers who said, we found these pictures taken in the 70s, we think they're still alive. So there's some other evidence submitted to this production company who started working with a retired U.S. marshal who worked on the case for a number of years. And so they gave me the prison booking photos from 1962 and said, can you compare these to the 1970s photo that, per, that shows them purportedly on a farm in Brazil in South America? So I examined the photos and looked at them and came to the conclusion that it was highly likely that they were, in fact, the same people and that helped reignite the investigation and send federal marshals down to Brazil looking for them. Now, to date, I don't think that they found them. Um, I gave, I rendered an analysis, an opinion, it was as close to it's them that I could. Um, it was real difficult because the pictures that they had in taken in the 70s depicted them with beards, longer hair, sunglasses, aviator-style aviator sunglasses that covered a lot of the face. But yet there was still enough there I was able to use specialized software to rotate the pictures in the same angle and such, and enough of the bony structure and surface morphology of the face that I was able to conclude that it was highly likely the same people, that in fact, they did make it off the rock.
0: Well, what and what do you think, speculating, what do you think happened to Frank Morse?
1: Well, I think they all three made it off the rock. I think uh, once they made it off the rock, they all went their separate ways. And, um, you know, the Anglin brothers probably wound up in Brazil. Where the Birdman went, where Frank Morris went, who knows?
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, who knows? I mean, it's, it's still highly contested, uh, depending upon who you talk to, um, whether they made it, in fact, made it off the rock. But again, you know, there was a lot at stake for the federal agencies, and they weren't going to admit that, you know, that there's a possibility that they made it off the rock. It's no different than D.B. Cooper, who jumped out of an airplane.
0: Exactly. And, you know, we'll we'll talk about D.B. Cooper uh, in our next segment. But, you know, I think, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, that was pretty much the demise of Alcatraz after that escape or attempted escape. I think so.
3: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus.
0: the stories about the famous cases that you've worked and the sketches that you've produced. But you know what? While we were talking, you started discussing some of the other things that you're doing forensically, and I'd like to hear more about that.
1: Well, you know, Ron, about three years ago, I decided to to just chuck my pencil and get rid of my paper and and go digital. So uh, what that meant was I just started... um, Doing my composites uh, using uh, electronic tablet and stylus, uh, using uh, some of the painter and some of the arts type of you know uh, commercially available software uh, to draw my sketches. It made it more efficient because I was able to not have to keep redrawing common, you know, headgear, you know, f- you know, facial jewelry things like that that can be kind of monotonous. And so it was all about workflow. How do I Uh, elevate my art skills, uh, make a high quality end product and be able to, you know, handle more in less time. Uh, In other words, I was able to focus on the interview and let the technology help me with the rest of it. Uh, So that led to um, other things because again, traditional police sketch artists, uh, you know, they work in their favorite medium, whether it's pencil paper, whether it's chalks, whether it's pastels, Um, You know, if they do the facial reconstruction on the skull, you know, hands on clay, um, you know, the photo analysis and photo uh, imaging used to be, you know, light boxes and tracing paper and stuff. So I got rid of all that and went to uh, tablets and styluses and iPads and, you know, Adobe Photoshop software and, you know, Corel Painter uh, to do all that. And and now actually I'm even getting into a um, 3D uh, digital space with uh, an environment with skull reconstruction. So uh, actually I received a skull the other day and I was able to uh, you know, digitize it, scan it, and import it into this 3D environment to set the tissue depth markers uh, using the software versus the old tedious way we used to do it with just cutting um, the mechanical pencil erasers, the, the refill right. erasers you'd get. Right gluing them on and and now you can do that in just half the time and and so um it's a you know we're moving towards digital solutions for a lot of things so i decided to you know take my art so to speak my expertise my training in in, the, in, the, in that direction
0: well you know now you're heading off in a, in a totally different cor- you know direction uh mike with all this new computer expertise where did you get that? Are you are you self taught? Did you go to classes to learn how to do that? Where did that skill set come from?
1: Well, um, you find good people and you hire them to do the work that you can't do. And I I learned enough about computer in terms of being the end user through my police career when we first started migrating towards you know, in car computers. I actually started before that. I mean, my I was I had an Apple II computer It was one of my first desktops. Um, but, you know, as I learned more about the end-user experience and the Windows software and some of the stuff with uh, uh, the, the police technology stuff we're using in the cars at the department, and I saw what the companies had done with the facial composite um, elements in terms of creating software, I wasn't really happy with what they were doing. Um, I thought it was lacking in terms of its uh, quality, It's uh, end user experience. And so I found people who were already established in terms of, you know, writing the code, writing the script and creating the software. Mm -hmm. And then me taking my expertise as an artist and creating a database of facial features to be able to put it all
0: together. Wow. Um, Now, do you do consulting with those types of software companies?
1: um, I did early in my career um, to my idea was to elevate the field. I, right. I just I knew that technology was going to play a big role, and I wasn't going to be a denier. I mean, a lot of sketch artists they want to use their pencil and paper, and and that's fine. But they have a tendency to badmouth the software, and they 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 would their whole thing was, I can do better than software. And my argument was, well, maybe that was true several years ago, but in this day and age today, uh, the with the right training, uh, a Person who's a non artist can produce an equally effective, if not more effective, composite. Than a hand drawn artist.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, some of the things that I see uh, with electronic technology and 3D imaging and all of these things uh, is just incredible. I was just in uh, Delray Beach, Florida, day before yesterday, at a uh, at a death scene, and I'm working with our forensic engineer and our uh, you know. Com- Computer reconstructionist, and between those two gentlemen, uh, just the, the 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 things that they're able to do. And of course, they'll go out with a Forbus 360 or a Leica or something, sure. of course, and they're going to plot millions and millions of points. But then they do all this 3D imaging, and the end result is just phenomenal. So I, I'm with you. I, I think you've made some great decisions. Uh, you know, moving from the hand sketching to digital, you know, digital sketching, so to speak.
1: Well, yeah, I like to have a saying, and I I tell my wife or anybody else to listen to me. It's like, I may not have pioneered it, but I perfect it. So I would rather, you know, it doesn't matter to me who created it. Um, I want to be able to take it and adapt it to my audience. And I think that the biggest thing with, especially with what we do, and I think one of the reasons that, you know, police lost faith in in some of the sketches because, you know, A, you know, they were grabbing anybody that could hold a pencil and that may or may not had a lot of training. Uh, and B, they, the people weren't properly trained in the first place. So I don't care if you're using CAD software, if you're using composite software, proper training is the key.
0: No, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Hey, I think this is a good time during our show to start talking uh, about how someone could start the process of becoming someone like you and doing what you're doing.
1: Well, there's a couple of things. Um, you know, most of the people that want to do this, uh, it's going to be very hard if you're not part of a police department. But that being said, you know, there are volunteer opportunities to find your, your way in, to get your foot in the door. Uh, or if you're a forensic science student and you're studying traditional you know, forensic chemistry, DNA, you know, crime scene, you want to add a, an extra tool to your toolbox, you know, your, to make yourself more marketable. And when you get with a police department to make yourself more valuable, this would be a good skill to learn. Now, if you if you are artistic, great. If you're not, there's a software-driven approach. You know, if you our website sketchcop.com, um, you know, has uh, videos and information about the software. Uh, plus, now we have um, we just started up our SketchCop Online Academy, where we're going to be uploading training and short courses on how to interview, uh, how to use the software. How to use third-party software to refine and manipulate that image even further. And when I say manipulate, it's probably a very loose, probably not the correct term, but I'm using it loosely. In other words, trying to refine that image based upon eyewitness description, being guided by the eyewitness to make better composites. And again, you, you can't throw you can't throw the product out there and or any services without offering some sort of training. Um, I wrote two books. I wrote a book. Uh, on my experience as a sketch artist and how I got started and
0: uh, detail. What's the name of that book, Mike? And where can people Uh, get
1: that book? Yeah, the book is called sketch cop drawing a line against crime. The publisher is wild blue press. You can actually get it on Amazon, Amazon amazon.com. And each case that details that I detail details different challenges, whether it's a child eyewitness, a hysterical eyewitness, uh, a particular type of suspect, um, and so that's a good primer to get started to get an idea of how sketch artists work, some of the challenges. You know how I got into the business and overcome different adversities, and then I followed that up with uh, last year I, I published a book called um, "Creating Digital Creating Digital Faces for Law Enforcement." Had a had a mind, had a mind. <laughs> A little mind pause right there. Yeah, creating digital faces for law enforcement. I published it through Academic Press, Elsevier, and they're one of the world's largest publishers of scientific journals, and that's more of a textbook, but again, I talk about how to get into the business, the importance of mentorship, the importance of how to lobby your agency, how to take software like mine and, and create sketches and how to use like a program like Corel Painter to further those sketches, uh, how the human face is assembled and uh, the, the value of proportion in, in, in such. So um, again, it's a primer not to turn you into like a scientist or artist, but enough to kind of get you thinking digitally and showing you the different tools and such that you can use. And those are available, again, through Amazon.com, or if you go to my website, www.sketchcop.com, there's a drop-down tab
0: for books, and you can purchase them through there as well. Yeah, let's talk about those two books again, all right? So sure. the name of the first book is? Sketch Cop, Drawing a Line Against Crime. And that's at Amazon.com. And yes. your second book is?
1: Creating Digital Faces for Law Enforcement which is also available through
0: amazon.com that's fantastic you know we have a lot you know this industry uh is changing okay law enforcement is changing and our industry meaning the forensic industry forensic investigation csi the different things that we do is is really changing rapidly and we're starting to get people that have been, you know, watching television. Of course, you and I know that the whole CSI thing on television—about 85 percent of it—is you know, as malarkey, you know, we, do, we don't do the stuff that, that they show on television. And actually, some of the other stuff we do is far more exciting than they show on television, right? There's a lot more, uh, you know, there, there's a lot more accomplishment. And, uh, I mean, we get down and dirty and get in-depth in these forensic investigations. But I think we're seeing, uh, at least I am, I'm starting to see college-age kids uh, with some technical skills that are saying, you know, I really don't want to be a police officer because, you know, look how the job has changed as a police officer, and it's increasingly dangerous, but I really... Th- this whole thing about forensic investigations and forensics really resonates with me, and you know maybe I'm a guy that's you know good with computers, and you know we're starting to see uh, a lot of kids going to vid- you know, going into the business of video gaming and things like that. So they have some predicate skills. Are are those the types of people where uh, you know the the electronic and excuse my language because I'm not explaining it as good as you but the electronic um, technology of sketching might be something that would resonate towards you know for them
1: absolutely and that's one of the things I cover in my book creating digital faces for law enforcement that my belief is moving from a forensic artist or forensic facial imaging expert to a facial imaging technician which is someone who has computer savvy and some computer skills uh, and also, is good with people, and so it becomes more of an analytical type of business, so to speak. Um, keeping and you know th- with you know people to have those those hard skills with affable personalities and stuff that can connect with people, know how to treat people, and um, they're going to challenge the conventional sketch artists in the future because there'll be this software-driven approach that again. You know, it'll be available and put in the hands of more people. And if you know if people want to learn more and, and keep touch with me, they you know they can they can contact me or follow me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram at the Sketch Cop, and also connect with me on LinkedIn. But they can also go to www.sketchcopacademyonline and sign up for a monthly newsletter. We put out a monthly newsletter. Um, talking about different issues in forensic facial imaging, and also they can check out some of the courses we have available now and some of the ones we have in the future, as well as, you know, new products that come out and uh, different things that we're doing.
0: Well, that, I think that's a great idea. You know, the one thing that I want to toss in here, because I'm a behaviorist, and one of the things that I think is, is lacking in the law enforcement industry now, and part of it is as a result of technology, and that is we don't, Uh, You know, the the people coming into law enforcement now uh, and uh, like sort of the millennial generation does not have good communication skills. And so I just want to underscore, and I think you'll back me up here, that whenever you are, you know, going to investigate something and and certainly – uh, a sketch artist investigates because they're investigating what's in the the witness or the victim's mind. That's that's what you're investigating and you're trying to get the best possible description of that individual, but you can't you can't get over that bridge until you learn how to listen to people and learn how to talk to people and develop rapport because you want those people to trust in you. You want them to resonate in in what you stand for and what you're trying to do with them. And then also keeping in mind that these people uh, are often extremely traumatized emotionally, psychologically. So you have to have very good communication skills and And you can learn how to do that.
1: Yeah, you can't do this job uh, by text message. I mean, you you have to put your phone down. The only time I text message people is when I'm trying to arrange an appointment. For example, before this uh, podcast, before this interview, I was texting a eyewitness, the victim of a sexual assault in Baltimore to set up a time for us to get online. Because now what I do is I do distance composites where I actually set up Skype like sessions with victims from all over the country, all around the world, where if they're the victim of a crime, a police department can contact me. I contact them, their eyewitnesses online, and we do a screen connection session where they watch me draw a live time. And that's not something you can do via text messaging and not talking to people, not learning how to talk to people, because it's one thing to talk to someone face-to-face because you can read their body language and see different things, It's something totally different to talk to them on the phone and get a sense for their emotions and their body language and their total communication style
0: when it's just nothing but it's nothing but but verbal. Uh, you're absolutely right, and and I think you and I, you know, started in the early 70s uh, together in, in different parts of, of the state of California, but I'll tell you what they told me when I came on. They said the most important thing that we're going to, you know, give you uh, or, or the most important thing that you can have is not what we're going to give you. You know, we're going to give you a gun and handcuffs, and we're going to give you all these other things, but the, the two most important things that you need to have to make this job work for you is your mouth and your mind, you know. And, uh, and and know how to be a good listener, know how to be a good talker, know when to listen, know when to speak, and uh, know how to you know uh, develop rapport and interpret people on different levels. And if you can learn how to do that, you'll always be a successful police officer and you'll always be a successful detective.
1: Absolutely, Ron, and I think that police work like forensic science and certainly The sketch industry, the the industry of being a forensic artist, they call it a dying art. I don't know necessarily that that's as accurate as saying, to me, it's going through a rebirth. It's going through a rebirth because of technology.
0: I really like the message that you're giving out today uh, to some people that might be sitting in for the first time, listening to a thread of evidence, listening to the science of forensics, and seeing that there's so many facets in, in forensic investigations. Uh, Mike, I can't thank you enough for being on the program. Let's just go over your website again so we can encourage people uh, to contact you and start a brand new career in forensic sketching.
1: Sure, let's talk. I wanna to talk to your fans, people who are listening right now. You can contact me via social media. I am on LinkedIn under Michael W. Street. I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the handle at the SketchCop. Uh, my website is www.SketchCop.com, And the educational arm of our business Sketchcop Solutions Incorporated is www.SketchCopAcademy.com. And again, we have a we've got it, that's where you can sign up for our newsletter, sign up through our courses, SketchCop.com's got the books, the services, the software, and um, let's have a
0: conversation. I love it. Yeah, do yourself a favor out there, uh, listeners and people of our forensic team. Get a hold of Michael Streed and see if you can begin a new career as a forensic sketch artist. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and forensic sketch artist, the sketch cop, Michael Streed, on America Out Loud in the Threat of Animals. Be safe, guys.